Verse 42 is where we will begin, but I would like to ask a question first. What makes for a good church? Do they have a high production value? Do they have a big building or a building at all? Do they have great coffee? Do they have a great kids ministry? What about the youth? How many services do they offer? What programs do they have? Does the pastor tell relatable stories? Is he funny? Is he a good speaker? Did he go to seminary? Is the worship team talented? Do they use Hillsong songs or just hymns? Are the lights up or down or purple? Is there a good online presence? Is the website modern looking? Do they have pews or chairs or folding chairs? What makes for a good church? I want to show you a picture. We have brothers and sisters across the globe who would be shocked at our American consumerism of the church. When they drive hours through the night so as to not get caught, to spend five to ten minutes reading a forbidden Bible as they sit in a dark room or a cave, even though they could be put to death for any of it, they treasure their Savior over their lives. They have no pews, no chairs, no building, no lights, no service production, no elegant speaker who went to seminary, no children's ministry, no greeters, no budget, no coffee. Yet here in America, this church would be a failure. What makes for a good church? However, we must also be realistic. We can't go too far to the other side of the spectrum and just think that, well, we can pick any church because I feel guilty that... Um, you know, we're, we're meeting in a building <clears throat> because there are over 9,000 Protestant Christian churches in the world, but that's part of the issue. A church, in quotes, might not be church at all. This 9,000 includes non-Christian Christianity, such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and Prosperity Gospel churches. But those are some of the somewhat obvious ones. That 9,000 also includes churches who, on the outside look to be all about Jesus. They might even bear his name. Yet what they preach is everything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's all about self-help tips and tricks to a better life. So what makes for a good church? We see the answer here in our passage. What we're going to see is four characteristics of this first church that at the very least should be true of a good church, should be true of us, of you and me. There is no command in these verses to strive to be exactly like this <clears throat> because we're not supposed to be a first century church in the 21st century. Why? Because we don't have a temple. We have a converted warehouse. We don't have city walls. We have Facebook walls. And Leah said, nobody would laugh at that one. <laughs> she said, don't do it, Jake. <laughs> Maybe somebody got it. I don't know. We, we have a different look, but the, what we are still to show is the glory of God as the church in the 21st century in these same ways. 
So it won't look the same, but these four characteristics should be the same. It is, in fact, what makes a church a good church. So with that in mind, let's read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray now that you would humble every one of us. That you would remove any distraction that we might have, any stress that is laying on our hearts. So that we might see and behold your word and what you have for us in your word. God, it is only possible if you do the work to change and transform us by your word. And so we ask that you would do it. For me, if there is anything I say that is against your word, that is contrary to sound biblical doctrine, I pray that you would either keep me from saying it, or if I do say it, to help us all forget it. God, and if there is any thought that any of us have that is contrary to you, would you remove it from us and give us a proper view of you so that we may worship? Please change us and help us and guide us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What are the four characteristics of a good church? The first is devoted to teaching. The second is devoted to fellowship. The third is devoted to breaking of bread. And the fourth is devoted to prayer. Devoted to teaching. Devoted to fellowship. Devoted to breaking of bread. And devoted to prayer. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So let's start with the first one. A good church is devoted to teaching. Our text actually begins with the word and... And so, of course, we have to see what's before it to understand what's happening. Ever since the fall, back in Genesis 3, God has been on a redemptive mission to purchase back his people from an eternity of hell. He's trying to purchase them back from the penalty of their sins. He promised that a Messiah was going to come, and he did. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, came and dwelt among men. He ushered in this new covenant of grace, and everyone could be part of the family, by grace, through faith. And then he was crucified and buried in a tomb, according to all the prophecies about him. And all the disciples felt the weight of being duped. They thought this was the guy, but he died, so surely he's not the guy. He told them he would rise again, but they didn't understand it fully, and so they lost all hope. And they went back to their old lives as though nothing had happened. However, about three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, 
showing his power over sin and death and showing that he was, in fact, the Son of God. He spent some time explaining the scriptures, showing them that they were indeed about him. And it was in this time that Jesus gave the Great Commission as we see it in chapter 1, verse 8. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Directly after this, Jesus ascends into heaven. A few days later, God sent the Holy Spirit to be the power and help to those who believed so that they could be witnesses of the gospel to the world. This free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to all nations. And in a moment, this church, the era of the church, exploded onto the scene. Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times once to a little girl, he proclaimed the gospel with power in the very first recorded sermon, and he proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified, and over 3,000 souls were added to the eternal kingdom by one sermon. These 3,000 are the ones that we see in our passage at the very beginning, and they, the 3,000, this brand new iteration of the new covenant church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Devoted here is actually two terms in the Greek, uh, live and faithful. I love that whenever they don't know how to describe something, they're just like, well, it's like this and this. Just put them together and make a new word. But essentially, a husband is to live faithful to his wife, live faithfully according to the vows he made to his wife. He's devoted to her. So then, how do we live faithful? How do we devote ourselves to a teaching? First, we must know what a teaching is. So far in the book of Acts, all we've seen is one teaching from the apostle Peter, but in it, we see the teaching that the church is supposed to be devoted to. Spoiler alert, it's all about Jesus. Peter went back to, the, back to three Old Testament texts to show that Jesus was truly the fulfillment of all they know and have studied. Jesus was the lamb, the resurrection, the life, and now... By repentance and belief, we, guys, have access to the Father. Peter's teaching was Jesus-focused, gospel-centered, and it's the same thing we see in every sermon in the book of Acts, all 28 chapters. From this point on, it's all the same. The teaching they devoted themselves to, they were teachings about Jesus. The apostles would tell all that Jesus' death, uh, how it had to happen, in order for the wrath of God to be fully satisfied, as the wages of sin are death, but that if we are in Jesus by faith, by trusting in him, then we have eternal life. The teaching they devoted themselves to was the gospel. Why? Why live faithfully? Why devote ourselves to the gospel? We know why. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to fall back into patterns and habits of sin. We need to go back to the gospel every single day. We need to go back to the gospel every single hour, all the time. In order to remember who we are, who we have been made in Christ, that we have an eternity that is secure in his hands. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And then again, he says it a little bit later. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Being gospel-centered, if you don't know, that's kind of a big thing for us. It's not just a phase. It's not a mission church vision strategy for getting more people to join. It's, it's our only hope in life. The apostles knew this. The 3,000 that were there knew this. And so they devoted themselves to the teaching. How? How do, they, how do these 3,000 men and women give up? Uh, how, how, do they, how are they devoted to the teaching? The first thing is they gave up uh, all of their lives to be there. Remember, these 3,000, they don't all live here. They're from every nation around, but they live here now. They're devoting themselves to the gospel, and it's going to be costly. Devoting ourselves to the gospel will be costly. It might look like waking up early to read and pray before work or school instead of checking our phone first thing in the morning. It might look like praying and preparing our hearts for worship and for the teaching we are going to hear instead of just showing up to be filled up. Ask questions. Find someone to be in a discipleship relationship with you so that you can ask them these questions. The 3,000, they would have so many questions about this Jesus, about how does this work? So you guys saw him go up into the clouds? How did, how'd that happen, guys? Surely they had so many questions, but it was great for focusing in and clarifying the true gospel. Because if the gospel is true, it's absolutely worth devoting our lives to. A good church is devoted to teaching of the gospel, to sound doctrine. Secondly, a good church is devoted to fellowship. Look at verse 42 one more time. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Fellowship here is the word koinonia, another word for participation. So a good church is devoted to participation. We see exactly what this looks like in verse 44 and on, where we're going to see four qualities of fellowship. The first is unity. The second is generosity. The third is discipleship. And the fourth is evangelism. Unity, generosity, discipleship, and evangelism. The first one we see is unity. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together. They had unity. 3,120 people at least in unity. That's crazy. Sometimes Leah and I don't even have unity. And we are 3,118 people less than that. How does this happen? Yet what a proof of the power of the gospel. Though we are so different, though we are separated by class and race and language and tax brackets and hobbies and jobs and personalities and humors, we're united as one under the same banner of the gospel. Ephesians 3 says this, we are all fellow heirs. We are all fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is why the verse goes on, they had all things in common because they were united into the same body. So your mission is my mission. 
we're after the same thing. We're to glorify our same Father and proclaim the same gospel. I just do it here, you do it there. And then we come together on Sunday or Wednesday to talk about it and see how it went for you this week. And we praise our God together and then we go out and do it some more. But far, far too often, from as far as I can tell or see, church can easily, very easily, become about me. And so if there is no production value, if there is no comfort, if there is no good speaker behind the pulpit, if anything at all challenges my comfort or asks too much of me, then I'm out. I want church my way. And if it's not, then I'm going to tell you about it, but I won't help you with it. But I still want them to be fixed. Selfishness like this is diametrically opposed to unified fellowship. What selfishness can you repent of? The second thing about fellowship is generosity. Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Fellowship is costly, but it is worth it. These 3,000 men and women and children, they're new to the area because they heard the gospel and like, all right, we're here. We want to hear this teaching. So they don't have any jobs or any places to, say, to stay. So those who had possessions and belongings to spare, they spared them generously. Things that they purchased, things that belonged to them, they sold them because it is costly to live in fellowship with other believers. But the resurrection makes it worth it. In what ways are you generous toward those in need? The third thing about fellowship is discipleship. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. So the idea here is discipleship. Because what they would do is they would attend temple together and they would teach and learn and grow and confess sin. And they did it every day. This is discipleship. We cannot claim to be a believer of Jesus and forsake discipleship relationships. They might look like getting coffee once a week with a new believer and reading scripture, confessing sin and praying. Or it might look like showing your son how to fix the weed eater and teaching him patience because the weed eater is never fixed. Or it might look like waking up at 5 a.m. with a brother or a sister to meet together to disciple each other. It might look different for all of us, but it must look like something. We must be involved in teaching others about this kingdom, and we must be involved in learning more about this kingdom from others. It will be costly, but it will be worth it. Who are you in a discipleship relationship with? The fourth thing we see about fellowship is evangelism. If you'll skip down a bit in the verse, and having favor with all the people. This idea is evangelism. Having favor with all the people meant they had some sort of interaction with these people as they shopped, as they walked, as they worked, they went to parties. They would be in the midst of these people who are unsaved, the same people whom God is seeking to save, and they had favor with them all. 
This is the city where Jesus, the king of these men, was just crucified not 50 days ago. But they had favor with them all. Everyone liked them? How is this possible? It was the love they had for each other. John 13, 34 through 35 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what all of fellowship boils down to, love. When you walked in, there was a sheet of paper on the, next to the worship guides, and it has just a list of one another's. If you didn't grab it, grab it on the way out. Um, but it helps to kind of all-encompass what, what we are supposed to look like with one another, how we are supposed to be generous with one another, what fellowship looks like. But all of it is encapsulated in one word, love. People will know us by our love for one another. Do you love the people here? Do your actions and thoughts show it? This favor allowed the gospel message to be proclaimed with favor. Since they were devoted to the gospel and to fellowship, it looked like something that these people had never seen before. They'd seen large groups of people come together at the Colosseum for sports, but never a community of grace where 3,000 plus people are in unity and they're selling all their stuff and being so joyous and happy. And so when the conversation would arise about what's going on with these people, the gospel would be readily heard because they want to know. Not everyone will listen. That will always be true. But how can anyone hear anything if we don't speak to them? Proclaiming the gospel message does look like words and deeds. If they deny it, it's on them. But if they never hear it, it's on us. Who is God leading you to share the gospel with? If no one, why is it no one? A good church is devoted to fellowship with unity, generosity, discipleship, and evangelism. Third thing, a good church is devoted to the breaking of bread. Verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. How do we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread? What does that mean? The same phrasing is used elsewhere by Paul, the same exact words, uh, to refer to the Lord's Supper, which is the visual picture of Jesus laying down his life for those who would believe. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So how do we devote ourselves to the Lord's Supper? One way that we have decided as a church is that we do it every Sunday. There are multiple reasons behind that, but this is one of them. But for all of us, we do it by examining our lives before Sunday comes to see if we have any sin that needs to be repented of. And then simply, we show up to take it with the family. It's not just a thing we do. 
We eat to remember and rest in the finished work of cross, of Jesus Christ on the cross. We eat to live and to be filled with joy again. For the gospel is remembered when we partake of it together. And in that, God is glorified. A good church is devoted to breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper. And then the fourth thing, they're devoted to prayer. Look at verse 42 one last time. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. How do we devote ourselves to prayer? We see throughout the book of Acts that the church practiced both free and formal prayer. They prayed together corporately and individually. They prayed in the temple, in homes, as they walked along the road for the sick and afflicted, before they preached sermons, before they heard sermons. While they were in the midst of persecution, they would do it in intense intercession for particular situations. They would do it as they offered thanks for their food, as they gave thanks to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, as they praised God in song, and then lastly, as they offer up petitions for God to simply meet their daily needs. A good church is a church that prays. Before nearly every service, the elders meet together to pray for mission kids, for worship, for the sermon, for God to be glorified, and for people to be saved. After the first song, Aaron prays for all of us and on behalf of all of us. We pray for the nations. We pray for our hearts to be open to God's word. During the service, as any of us are teaching, the other elders have committed to praying for their courage and authority for those who are speaking, but also for all of us to hear well. After the sermon, we pray to give thanks to God for the Lord's Supper. And after that, we pray one more time. I mean, just so you guys know, I keep my member document. I keep, uh, and I update it about once a week, almost every week, and it has every one of your names in it. I pray for you by name. A good church is a church that prays because a good church knows it has nowhere else to go but to the throne room of grace. How is anything else going to happen? How is anyone going to be saved? In what ways are you praying for the church? Or for those around you? Or your neighbors? Or that family member that you know doesn't know Jesus? Or the nations? A good church is a church that is devoted to the gospel of Jesus and the teaching of it. A good church is a church that is devoted to costly fellowship. A good church is a church that is devoted to the Lord's Supper. And a good church is a church that is devoted to prayer. And these four together are the basic characteristics, the firm foundation that a church must have in order to be a good church. However, please understand me. The church is not the leadership. It is not the elders or the building these characteristics are not something that the leadership can manufacture. The church is you and me. We are the church. These characteristics, they're for all of us. This passage communicates the good news of Jesus Christ because it shows the outworkings of it, what it looks like for the church. 
The gospel gives salvation from sins unto newness of life. And this newness of life looks like what we see here in these verses. If we desire to resemble this heart of this kind of church, we must be people of the gospel. Truly, the the firm foundation, as we just sang, of any of it is Jesus. If we desire to be like this amongst this body where we are, we must disciple and serve and worship. We must be devoted to teaching of the gospel, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, to praying together individually. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, the church should look like this. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, then we should look like this. Why? Because of the gospel. All of this church, all of everything we just read about that we are supposed to be is from what God has done through the gospel. Look back with me to verse one, chapter one, verse 21. Chapter two, verse 21, sorry. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You notice what comes first here? Peter proclaims the good news of the gospel. He says, look, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about. This is Jesus. You guys killed him. He was resurrected. He is. He was God. And he's living. He's resurrected. And you too can have this new life. By faith, it is a free gift given to you by grace. Jesus did the work for you to be saved. And since that is true, the church looked like this. So how do we do it? By mercy. By grace. By the utter mystery of love that has been shown to us in the gospel. That we were enemies of God, dead in our sins when Christ died for us. We have the greatest news in the universe. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. We have eternity from, we have a salvation from an eternity of wrath, and we have it by a complete act of mercy. And in that mercy we rest, in that grace we stand, so that we might show the glory of the one God who could do such a thing. And it looks like this. The truth is, we don't look like this always. When I said that nearly every Sunday we pray that way, nearly every week, every week I pray for you guys. Nearly every day we look something like this, maybe sometimes, but sin and its rain are still weighing heavy on us, and it will be like this until glory. So what do we do? When we fail and sin and are selfish and we don't look like this, we repent of it. And we confess that sin to our God and our brother or sister, and we strive 
to rest again in the gospel so that we might live a life unto so great a God and King. It is for the glory of God that we do this. And it is by the mercy of God that we have any ability to do it. And so in our nature, when we sin, we return. We repent. It will take the church to do that. It will take each other, coming one another, building each other up, allowing confession of sin to happen, and showing them simply, and being shown simply, there is grace for you. It all happens by the gospel, by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so, in order for us to remember the gospel again here today, we are going to, surprise, break bread together in the Lord's Supper. Because by it, we remember our gospel. If you are a believer, you are welcome to the table to partake as part of the family. However, if you are an unbeliever, or if you are in unrepentant sin, please evaluate where you are in your life. Take this time to examine your hearts to see if, uh, if communion is for you. But if those are you, if, if you are an unbeliever or an unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. As scripture says, you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And I don't want that for you. If you're in unrepentant sin, believe in the gospel again today. That the sins you are in right now have been paid for. Finally and forever by your gracious Father in heaven, by the sacrifice of his Holy Son. Every one of the sins that you are sitting in right now is undeservingly off of you and onto your Savior at the cross. Return to your Father in this time. Live back according to this purpose. If you're an unbeliever, the bad news is because of your sin, you currently have a debt on your head that you are unable to pay. There are no amount of good deeds. It takes holiness to be before God and live. But that is exactly what you have as a free gift waiting for you in Jesus Christ. Would you turn from your sins? and trust in his life for yours? Would you believe today? If you are here this morning and we walked, as we walked through these characteristics of a good church, of, of what we are supposed to look like, and now you're sitting here just overwhelmed by, man, I don't do many of any of these things. I'm not doing anything, really, to glorify God, to love his people. Maybe I do some of those sometimes be encouraged unbelievers do not worry whether or not they're glorifying God only believers do that repent of your sins by grace and strive by grace to live according to God's standards for his people for all of us here is our prayer Father, we admit and confess our utter need for this body and blood to stand before you as holy. 
would you, by this grace, give us a heart that desires to live in these ways that we might best glorify and honor you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, take your time to pray through what God has given you in his word. Take your time to pray through whatever it is God is laying on your heart right now. And then when you're ready, uh, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them and bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. Why? Why do we strive to remember the gospel so that we can live in these ways? Because our Savior strove to the cross to give his life for us. And so we give our lives right back to him. All of this, all of everything we just talked about, this maybe potentially glorifying God and people seeing it and and coming to faith and us getting to spend eternity with them. All of it is possible. And the grace that you and I have been shown to have eternity at all, all of it is possible. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the grace and the mercy enough to live our lives according to your gospel? By it, help us to stand. By your grace and mercy, help us to see everything in our lives so that we can live like this to best honor and glorify you and to best show who you are to those who do not know you. God, let none of us be remembered, but let you be remembered. Let no one see Mission Church or or who we are at all and see anything about us that is necessarily amazing, but what you are doing in us God, would you please enable us, set our feet on this firm foundation and build us a life such as this. Because as much as we want to, we really don't want to. As much as we might truly desire, we don't have any ability Our nature is to sin. And so, God, we confess it. We are selfish. We don't like fellowship. We don't like to be challenged. 
We don't like persecution. We don't like to pray. Father, it is a hard work to go against our nature, so would you do it in us? And let us look back on this time one day and see every little way that you worked in us. We turn from our sins to you, Father. Help us to live in such a way as to show you glorious and, and mighty and merciful and beautiful. We know that the only way we are sitting here this morning is by the mercy of Jesus Christ. By the mercy of the cross. That we, an undeserving bunch of sinners, have access to you. And so, God, would you build us? Would you build our church on this foundation, on you? We ask that you would do this. And we thank you for the work that you have done, are doing, and will do. And we give you all of the praise and all of the honor and all of the glory. Because who else would look at us and say, they are mine. Would you save us, remind us of our salvation. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.